Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello, and welcome to The Giant Splash. I'm John Shea of the San Francisco Chronicle, and we welcome special guest Eddie Montague to the podcast. Montague is a longtime umpire who's now an umpire supervisor, and we talk about the possibility of a robo-ump in the majors, some recent significant umpire hires, and his baseball roots. His dad played in the majors against Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb. And as a scout, he signed a kid from the Birmingham Black Barons named Willie Mays. So we're with Eddie Montague. And Eddie, one of the most decorated umpires, I think, in history, who has great roots uh, in the Bay Area, in San Francisco, to the Giants, and even to Willie Mays. And let's get this right out there. Eddie, your father, also named Eddie Montague, um, was a scout for the Giants back in the 1940s. And he visited uh, Birmingham one day to check out uh, a kid named Alonzo Perry who played in the Negro Leagues for the Birmingham Black Barons. What happened uh, with Alonzo Perry and your father and that scouting mission? Well, the Giants sent him down to look look at Alonzo, who was a power-hitting first baseman, I believe. And, and, uh, And my dad liked him a lot, but he saw this young kid and I think Willie was only like 16. You know, he always played with older, older fellas, and, and uh, he saw this kid, and he just caught his eye right away. You know, with his, you know, his great instincts, his power, uh, his arm, everything about him. And so, uh, my dad kind of forgot about Alonzo and went after Willie. It's an amazing story. I'm, I'm sitting with Eddie Montague, the longtime umpire. He umpired in the in the major leagues from 1976 to 1999. Uh, San Francisco native, grew up in Daly City. Yeah, two, yeah. Th- 2009. 2009, right. Yeah. And now is an umpire supervisor, and you can see him in the press box at uh, all giant home games for the most part. Sometimes over at the A's, but mm-hmm. mostly in San Francisco. And um, yeah, th- there's been some news lately on the umpires front. Uh, We've had some retirements, Jeff Kellogg, Dana DeMuth, um, Cedarstrom, Everett, you know, four guys, four long-standing fellas. In fact, two of them, Everett and Kellogg, I believe, are going to be umpire supervisors. Yes. Yeah. Now, also in the news, um, Kerwin Danley, who I went to school with at San Diego State mm-hmm. and played with Tony Gwynn. He was an, an outfielder with Steve Sales. Those three guys, by the way, played in the same outfield at San Diego State and all reached the big leagues. Tony is a ball player. Kerwin Danley as an umpire, and Steve Sales as a trainer with the Oakland A's. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Three paths to the major leagues, three different ways. Tony Gwynn's two, and they all played in the same outfield back in the late 70s, early 80s. But anyway, Kerwin Danley has been promoted to uh, crew chief, as has Alfonso Marquez. Now, what's interesting there and historic and wonderful is that Danley is the first African-American crew chief and Marquez is the first Latin American crew chief. What does that mean to you, Eddie? And what an inspiration for 
for kids who see these guys in, in the elevated roles. Yeah, well, you know, I worked with Kerwin when he first came up, and uh, um, terrific. Guy. You know, he's got great instincts. Well, he was a baseball instincts. I think he was an All American down there at San Diego. He was, State. yeah, an undrafted All American. Yeah, yeah, and he, uh, you know, he's got great instincts, and uh, he's he's taken the role um, the last couple years, filling in as a crew chief, and has shown that he's done a great job. Uh, you know, he's very passionate about what he does, and so I think he's going to be an excellent crew chief. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's great to see, and, you know, I, like anything else, is why wasn't this done a long time ago? Uh, but anyway, it, it is progress. Um, now, uh, you, you had some wonderful history as an umpire. Now, everybody envisions umpires as the four guys who have no friends out there except for themselves. Yeah. <laughs> but your history is amazing. I mean, when I go down the list, you were there when Pete Rose passed Ty Cobb on the all-time hits list. You were there when Barry Bonds hit his 71st, 72nd, 73rd home run in that final series, Giants-Dodgers at, at the ballpark in 01. You were there for Lou Brock's 3,000th hit. You were there when Kirby Puckett hit that home run in the 91 series. And you were there when, when, uh, when Mookie Wilson hit that little roller up the line and Bill Buckner didn't yeah. field it too cleanly. But the, some amazing stuff. What, do you have a highlight as, a, as an umpire, like your most memorable game, good or bad? Well, I think, I think uh, you know, when you think back, um, the, the Pete Rose thing always stuck out hmm. in my Hmm. Had a, that one night, and I could see it like I was there today, and and it was a, a certain time of night when the sky was just a beautiful sunset and the Goodyear blimps overhead, the flash bulbs are flashing, and uh, the Heat's first at bat. That's when he broke the record. You know, he hit a line drive to, to left field, and I remember uh, it, the game stopped. Uh, little Petey came out, his son uh, Tommy Holmes was first base coach, and Steve Garvey and I just stood back there and, and watched, and it was really emotional, and especially when Petey came out and hugged his dad and stuff like that. I got a little tear in my eye, look at Garvey. Wow. And so, but it was a great, it was a great moment, and I, you know, he passed Ty Cobb, and my dad played against Ty oh Cobb, my gosh. and my dad played for Cleveland, so, you know, I, I, I thought that was a, one of the highlights, you know, that I was a part of. It it was a, it was the Reds Padres. Steve Garvey is in a lot of those pictures because he was the Padres' first baseman that year. Yeah. Eric Shaw threw the pitch and actually sat on the mound, which he was <coughs> criticized for yeah. uh, later uh, during the ceremony. Yeah. Uh, but that's another story. Um, what, what about your? You grew up a Giants fan, right? I mean, you were born yeah. in San Francisco. You you grew up in Daly City, and your your father raised you. You, you, Seal Stadium, right? You were there the first couple of years when I, the Giants were there, I, and before that. Yeah, I've been, I've been to all three openers. I've oh been my. to opening day, yeah. day at Seal Stadium. My dad took me. Opening day at Candlestick Park, and then I opened up behind home plate as an umpire hmm. for the new ballpark. So, uh, yeah, so it was pretty lucky to have all that stuff happen. And uh, but I remember Seal Stadium, <clears throat> the first game, opening day. I remember my dad taking me. After the ball game, took me into the Giants clubhouse, and all I wanted to do was meet Willie Mays. I was eight, nine years old at the time, and uh, I remember the there was a big guy at the front of the clubhouse. You guys were talking to him. It was Jeff Chandler, the movie star, cowboy star back then. I didn't care about Jeff Chandler. I just wanted to meet Willie, 
And so I end up back at the dressing room, Willie's locker and stuff, and you know, he had that high-pitched voice, and oh, nice to meet you and stuff. And he pulled a brand new glove out of his locker, an embroidered glove, and gave me the glove. Wow. And I was like, you know, I was in heaven. What'd you do with Willie Mays' glove? <clears throat> well, this is another story. <laughs> So on my way home, and this is in one of the other, one of Willie's books, so I told this story that on my way home from Seal Stadium, I'm so excited and stuff, I'm like waving the glove out the window. This is Willie Mace's glove and this and that. I get home and we're halfway home and my dad said, well, he says, uh, you know, you're left-handed mm. and your brother Jerry's right-handed. And my brother Jerry was a good ball player. And then uh, I ended up, my younger brother, I ended up giving him the glove. And I think that glove got picked off at the playground within a month. And, uh, yeah, yeah. That's the saddest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, that's... <laughs> but all these years later, and, and we're watching the Angels and Giants in a little press booth at Scottsdale Stadium here. Just a couple hours ago, we were in the clubhouse, and you sat right next to Willie Mays, the man that you idolized as a kid, the man who gave you a glove in 58, the man your dad signed in 19... 50 and what a world yeah <laughs> you're still his buddy i still yeah you know i still i like listening to the stories willie's always been great with not only myself but my brothers the family mm -hmm. whenever we're around he's always you know uh just great with us and uh i i'll tell you a funny story yeah. is when, when i was a vendor out of candlestick park one day we used to hitchhike all over the city and up to the river and stuff and i used to hitchhike out i'm gonna tell my parents at that time but I got dropped off at 3rd and Townsend uh, one day, and I'm, I'm walking to the ballpark. And, of course, that's a rough area there at that time. And I must have looked out of place because all of a sudden this Cadillac pulls over and offers me a ride. I look in there, and it's Willie Mays, who had no idea who I was, yeah. but just knew that this was a kid walking to the ballpark, and he probably works out there. And I understood that he did that a number of times. And when I opened the door, my eyes got big. I Willie, I said, I'm Eddie Montague. Oh, you're Eddie's boy and stuff. <laughs> yeah. and, and when you say walk to the ballpark, you meant Candlestick Park. You didn't mean that other one right there on 3rd and no, King. Can, no, Candlestick. Yeah, yeah that's what I'm saying. That was from, a long walk. From 3rd down to Townsend. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, I'd try to hitch, but uh, yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's, a, you know. Okay, so what we, 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 all these great highlights I recited, what, what about uh, a low light? I mean, there must have been times that the motions just maybe uh, just overwhelmed the moment and got you and an umpire, got you and a player nose to nose. Back back in those days, it was real baseball, right? Because you could argue. Yeah. You, could, you, you wouldn't get ejected uh, oftentimes, but now you can't say much at all because once yeah, a play is reviewed, it's gospel. You can't go back. You yeah, can't, it's different. Otherwise, you're tossed. Yeah, and I liked it back then. I yeah. mean, you know, you had your arguments and stuff, and I remember Bobby Cox and I, we... We'd go nose to nose and, and stuff, and and uh, uh, I always said that Bobby's the type of guy I'd toss him out in, in Atlanta, and we parked in the same parking lot, the players' parking lot there, and we'd be nose to nose, and he's gone and, and screaming and yelling, and and but I always said if I see him in the parking lot and I had a flat tire that night, he'd help me change the tire. Uh, That's how Bobby was, you know. Uh, and he's a true Hall of Famer, but. Uh, yeah, there were a lot of times when, you know, you had the arguments. I remember a time in L.A. when and I tossed, uh, Vern Rapp was a manager of the Cardinals, and I tossed him out of the ball game for arguing balls and strikes in the dugout. Then I got his coach, Sonny Roberto, and then Lou Brock came up to bat, 
and uh, he was going to jump on the bandwagon, and I called a pitch down the middle, played a strike, and Lou stepped out, you know, to show me up. I said, get back in the box. He didn't get back in the box. I said, pitch the ball through the next pitch, strike two. He wasn't even in the box. And then the next pitch, I tossed him, him out of the game. I remember there was three guys in one game. And I remember after the game, I came in the dressing room there in Dodger Stadium. I get the phone rings. There was no cell phones there. Phone rings in there. It was Jocko Conlon calling me going, way to go, kid. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Another great story I, I recall, if true, <clears throat> Jose Cardinal. Now, yeah. you, you ran him like twice in one day, three times in two days, right? This yeah. is fantastic. Story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I didn't even count the second one. Okay. So it was at first base. We were in, I think it was either Palm Springs or Yuma when we used to drive down there for spring training. training. Okay. Okay. And uh, Cardinal had uh, rounded first base, went into second base, but he missed first base by three feet. And he got to second base and he's standing there. And, and uh, they appealed to first and I called him out. And he said a few choice words, and I threw him out. And so uh, the argument pursued, and, and uh, he goes to the dugout. And in, the, in those days, and I don't think they do it anymore, but pitchers, when they finish the game or, or a player, they go run in the outfield, do their laps as the game's going on. So uh, Cardinal goes to the dugout, and all of a sudden he's out in the outfield doing the, running his laps. So I stopped the game, and I said, uh, I said, uh, Herman Franks was the manager. I said, Herman, get him off the field. We're not starting a game. And Herman goes, Eddie, can he, can he run? I said, yeah, he can run all the way to the bus. <laughs> and I said it so loud, the crowd got a kick out of it. So the following day, uh, I was working with Jim Quick and mm -hmm. Ron Luciano, American sure. League umpire, three, we were just working three men. And we're standing before the game outside the our locker room and the Cubs locker room was nearby and Cardinal came up the runway and he spit to both Quick and I. He missed us, but I went in and told the crew chief, Ron Luciano, I said, hey, Ronnie, I said, uh, we get out there, you gotta, don't let him in the game, but he's done. And Ronnie said, you can't do that. I said, well, I said, he's not playing today. So we got out the home plate, Luciano took the lineup cards from Peanuts Lowry and I looked at him, I said, hey, Ronnie, let me see your lineup cards. And, Looked at the lineup cards, and there was Cardinal's name. And I said, give me your pen. And I crossed Cardinal out of the lineup. And, and Herman Franks came out, told him the story. And Herman was fine with, with what happened. Yeah. That's great. So I guess I was three times in two. Three times. Yeah. That might be a record. Yeah. We'll have more of our conversation with Eddie Montague right after this. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. The uh, Mets and Red Sox game, the, the grounder to Buckner. Yeah. Now, weren't you the right field umpire? Yeah. And what happened to the ball? Well, so I was in right field. John Kibler was working first base. And you figure the game's over. Here comes yeah. the, the play. And, and, and Billy went down to field it. And I think he peaked. Uh, you know, I'm not sure, but Mookie was pretty quick. And you know what? I'm not sure whether he would have beat it or not. But mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. he peaked and the ball went through his legs. And then. Uh, so that was game six, and Marty Barrett, the second baseman, 
started to come over and get the ball. Well, the game was over now, run scored. I said, I got it, Marty. So I picked up the ball and uh, took it in the dressing room. I put a little mark on it. Yeah. And uh, the next day we got rained out. And um, so game seven, come back. I still got the ball in my pocket. And uh, the Mets come back and win game seven. So after the game, I remember Johnny McNamara was one of the first guys in our locker room. He came in, it's a nice series and stuff. Poor John, you know, that stuff happens. But uh, um, then Arthur Richmond, who worked for years with the Mets and then also went on with the Yankees, wonderful man. So he came in, I said, Artie, I said, I've got something for you. I said, this is the ball that won it for you. This is the ball that went through Buckner's legs. Wow. And he didn't want to take it. I said, Arthur, I said, you work for the the club, I said, you deserve it more than I do, so you keep the ball. So he took the ball, and about a year later, he called and asked, he says, hey, yeah, that ball, he says, we're thinking of auctioning it off for charity, is that okay? I said, yeah, no problem. He said, uh, we could probably get about five, $6,000. So my wife and I were in Hawaii watching ESPN that morning, and I was watching it, and they said a record dollar amount for a baseball just went for $93,000. <laughs> wow. And that was the ball, and Charlie Sheen, the actor, bought it. Charlie Sheen, wow. Yeah. No regrets? No regrets. <laughs> that ball That's be, pretty good. It'd be in my attic, just clicking sure. and dusting. Since that, I think the ball's sold over again. Uh -huh. I think it sold last time, it sold for almost a half a million dollars. Yeah. So if, if, you, if, if we move on to the modern game again, you know, the, the um, strike zone, what, what could you say, what, what are the developments with the you know, automated strike zone, you know, we, now we have the newer technology, the Hawkeye rather than TrackMan, but um, it seems like it's coming, uh, and maybe the umpires don't appreciate this, but the robo-umpires, the technology is so advanced that there's part of the game that doesn't ever want that human element to change, but there's another part of the game that says, well, maybe the computers and the technology and the Hawkeye uh, you know, uh, system could, could could even get it more right than the umpires are getting it right, and the umpires get it right ninety nine percent of the time, correct? Pretty much, they're, they're well over ninety, almost ninety eight percent correct. Mm -hmm. and, you know, behind the plate, and then and, and on the bases, it's about the same. Their percentage, they, you know, being a supervisor, I get to watch this, and and I have to review all the plays all the time, and it's amazing. Like I was telling. Mike Everett yesterday, one of our newer supervisors, I said, you know, I've been doing this nine years as a supervisor, and you know, the last couple of years, I can't remember a play being missed that was really outrageous, maybe one or two. All the rest of them are bang, bang. I was put down on a report, super slow-mo. Uh, it was a super slow-mo play. Mm -hmm. I, I tell these guys, they get down in the dumps because they all want to get everything right. You know, that's how we work. You know, we work like that. Mm -hmm. You don't want to miss anything. And, uh, you know, it's just where you can't beat the camera. You can't beat that guy sliding into second base and coming off a half an inch, and they're going to keep the tag on him. Right. I mean, that's... That's not what it was developed for. I don't for. think that's what it's meant to be, but, you know, that's in what they're dealing with in replay. If they see that, they got to change it. So, mm. uh, and I think the umpires, they're okay with replay. Mm -hmm. I don't know about the new system. We're talking about the... Automated strike zone. We we did that down in fall ball this year, and it didn't impress me so much. But uh. and and there were some batters, and we saw some video of the replays where it was definitely not a strike, but it was called a strike. 
Right. And there were arguments, and the umpire could still. <laughs> I think it was. It, it, I, I remember the scene vividly. He actually was walking off complaining. And he got ejected. I was for, at that game. Okay. Yeah. What happened then? <laughs> well, it, yeah, it's, uh, I remember the, one of our younger umpires. So these guys, they've got that earpiece in. And you really don't notice the, the timing on it because the timing's pretty good to come from the up in the press box down to the umpire. So you don't really notice a lack of timing. Uh, and the pitch was almost bounced. The umpire hears strike, mm -hmm. calls strike. The hitter turns and argues with him, and the umpire pointed up to the press box. So and then he ended up ejecting him um, out of the game because the guy was so upset. But, uh, you know, and then, and when you looked at that replay, and even though the ball almost bounced, there was a little portion of the ball that might have come across that line, and that's what they're going on. So I always tell the story to Crook how I got my strikes on when I first came up. And... Um, I was in the California League my first year and called pitch and dug out screaming. I called the pitch. It was up a little high. Called the pitch. They screamed. I lowered it a little bit. Called one low. The other team's yelling. And I, when they stopped yelling, that was my strike zone. <laughs> <laughs> See, I trust that more than any technology of today. Well, yeah. like I say, these guys do a great job. I'm old school. I, I still put the Ken Burns tapes on all the mm -hmm. time because I mm -hmm. love watching the history of the game. And... Uh, yeah, like I said, I'm old school. I'm not a real fan of all the stuff that's going on. Well, I think the I think the batter was a Giants prospect, uh, Jacob Hayward. Yeah, because I remember watching him go down to the bullpen, and I think Klein was down there. Steve Klein. Steve was down there, and I'm watching him, and he's staying in the bullpen. He's not. It took him a long time to leave the dugout. He was there for over an inning, which I got upset with the umpires for not getting him out of there. And so I'm watching in the bullpen from the press box over talking stick. And the guy's still sitting down in the bullpen. I thought, hey, I could get one more ejection. I got up out of my seat. I went down to the bullpen. And, you know, all those young pitchers, they don't know who I am. But Klein does. So Klein sees me coming. I said, where's the guy that just got? He said he just left. I said, oh. darn, I wanted just one more. That's pretty good. <laughs> now, these are wonderful stories. But, you know, one thing I didn't ask about is your childhood as a Giants fan. Who You, you talked about Mays, but... What other Giants were your guys, and, and how often did you go out to the stick? Oh, and I, and yeah. uh, what games do you remember? I mean, 1962 obviously was I was, at was that the was the big seven. year yeah. when when the Giants lost to the uh, Yankees in seven games. Yeah, my dad took me to the game seven, mm -hmm. and uh, and I remember he wasn't a he did he smoked cigars down there, but he was smoking cigarettes that day. He was walking around nervous wreck, but. Uh, you know, Mickey Mantle and Yogi Berra and all those guys and, and, and stuff. So it was pretty exciting for me. And I remember when the, the Willie hit that ball and lined up. I remember jumping on the field after the game because I wanted to get up close and see what these, you know. You know, I used to do stuff like that. Yeah, we all did. Don't worry about <laughs> but, it. But uh, um, that was that was great. But, I mean, yeah, growing up, I mean, Willie Kirkland, Philippe. I see Philippe over mm -hmm. there mm -hmm. earlier. Mm -hmm. um, McCovey, I mean. You know, it's funny because I and McCovey, big fan of Willie's, and I ended up calling pitches on him. You know, it's funny. You think these guys are so much older than yes. you. Yes. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the gap. And you probably you probably umpired Barry Bonds, and you umpired Bobby, Bobby Bonds. Yeah. Yeah. Now, speaking of Game 7 in 62, Mays hit that double to right field. It was a soggy field. It had right. Roger Maris is the right fielder. 
Maddie Alou is on first. He goes to third. Willie gets a double. That's two outs in the ninth. The Giants are down one nothing. McCovey comes up and lines to Bobby Richardson, game over. Series yeah. over. But Willie says to this day, if he were the runner rather than the hitter, he would have scored. He would not have just gone to third. He would have blown right by the third base coach and scored. Absolutely. You were there. True. Would, would, would he have scored? Yes or no? I say yeah. Okay. I, I say yeah. I mean, I not remember that moment, but there was so many mm-hmm. times. I always said he's one of the greatest base runners mm-hmm. I've ever seen. But Willie didn't look at a coach. Willie, Willie's. You always watch him run. His his eyes were on the ball, and it didn't. He didn't break stride. And he. Oh my gosh. We just got a foul ball. Just got Almost got to us. No, it busted the computer. Yeah. That smoked. The booth right next to ours really got it. Might have busted the computer, but a uh, monitor anyway. Yeah. But like I said, Willie would take bases when no other player. Uh, he was just one of the best base runners I've ever seen. The age-old question: What's the best tool? I mean, are you serious? What is better than the next? Yeah. What What is the best? What is he? You knew, can't say what is it. Can't you know, you? Willie. I think about you know when I umpired and stuff, and I thought about watching some of these great players, and and they were always a step ahead. Mm-hmm. What am I going to do with this throw or whatever? And I thought that when I umpired, I would try to think ahead of the play so I would be in a position or was able to get to a position a lot faster. Well, too late for that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> they're still trying to fix this monitor. But you, your father, once more, uh, before he scouted and signed Willie Mays, he played shortstop for the Indians back in the 20s and 30s. Uh-huh. Now he came across Babe Ruth, yeah. Ty Cobb. I mean, really? I mean, yeah. your father played in games, and Babe Ruth was barreling into him at second base. Ty yeah. Cobb spikes high at second base. Yeah. True? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I, I look up, uh, I go to retro sheet, and I'll pull up some old box scores, and, and I look at those Yankee things, and I'm going, look, my dad's in the game with Babe Ruth and stuff. Yeah. And one of my dads, he, he didn't tell a lot of stories and stuff, you know. I wish, you know, you were alive, I'd ask him a lot more questions. Mm-hmm. But I remember one story he talked about when Babe Ruth came in and took him out at second base. Jeez. And and they carried my dad off in a stretcher. Oh, my gosh. And so after the game, my dad's laying in the trainer's room, and in comes Babe Ruth. He says, how you doing, kid? My dad said, that was one of the greatest moments of his career. <laughs> I mean, because they he couldn't it. walk with that. Babe Ruth was <laughs> like, Babe Ruth was just a, such an idol to all those guys. My dad used to tell me that when the Yankees, when they were playing the Yankees, and they were taking batting practice, the teams never left. It was kind of like a McGuire deal. The fans would come to watch batting practice. Well, the teams wouldn't leave when when Babe was hitting and stuff. And I remember telling that wow. story to McGuire because he was getting a little frustrated. You know. In 98? I would sit out yeah. and watch McGuire. Sure. I'd go out and watch because it was unbelievable what he was doing. Unbelievable. And so I told him that story about my. I said, Mark, I said, enjoy that. I said, because I'll give you the story of Babe Ruth and my dad, how my dad had to sit how the teams would come out. And yeah. I said, that's an honor, man. It's, yeah. So, so he played against Ruth and signed Mays. What, how could you do better than that? <laughs> how do you follow up? Yeah, he could have signed me. He could have signed you. <laughs> well, you played some ball? I couldn't hit the curveball. Well, how, how, how good was your dad? What, how, what kind of ball player was he? I think he, yeah, he was, he had a lot of speed. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was a good fielding shortstop. I think he held the Coast League record for a long time for most putouts or something in the game. Uh, 
You know, but you know, he only he was only in big leagues for four years, but those were pretty good players back then. So I always thought, you know, that's something just to, to get up there. It's an amazing story. You know, then he, he managed in the minor leagues, and then he scout he scouted for Boston first. And another guy that he signed was Mel Parnell. You know, was a pretty good player. So, yeah. So it went from your your father to you, and by the way, one of your two sons. And I remember writing the story, played with Ricky Henderson, not in the big leagues, yeah. but with the San Diego Surf Dogs, an independent baseball. And Willie, I mean, uh, Ricky in his uh, 40s just didn't want to stop playing. No. And, and one of his teams was the San Diego Surf Dogs, and your son played with them. Yeah, well, Terry Kennedy was the manager. Yes. And Terry, Eddie signed out of Pepperdine with the Dodgers. And when he was at Pepperdine, uh, he room, his roommates and buddies were Noah Lowry and and Danny Heron were his roommates. And so uh, when he signed with the Dodgers, uh, Kennedy was uh, working with the Dodgers at that time. So when Eddie got Eddie went Dodgers, then he went minor leagues with the Rockies. And then after being released, I think he played another independent team in Florida. And then Kennedy wanted him on his team. So he invited him down to San Diego and uh, played with Ricky, who Eddie, Eddie said Ricky was just great, you know. Uh, yeah. with the kids yeah I mean he, he he absolutely loved it to this day I recently spoke with him how, how much he enjoyed he said he enjoyed that as much as playing in the big leagues because it, it, it was like his childhood that's that's basically you you don't play for the money it wasn't a business you play for the love of the game love of the game and you know what I, I see Ricky over in Oakland and I look at him and I bet he would still put him out there yeah. and he would do some damage I, I always I always used to tell him, I said, Ricky, you're going to miss your Hall of Fame induction because you're going to have a game. Yeah, I'll give you a Ricky story. We're in, we're in New York, and uh, Ricky's up the bat. He's with the Mets then, and, and I called uh, strike one on him, I think it was. And Ricky steps out of the box and says, Ricky doesn't think that's strike. <laughs> Ricky, Ricky doesn't think that's strike. I took off my mask. I said, Eddie thinks it's a strike, so get back in the box. <laughs> Talking to that third person. You're a third person with Ricky. Yeah. That's yeah. precious. Yeah. Hey, I could go on and on, but uh, Eddie, you got to write a book. That's what, that's what they say. That's what they say. Well, yeah. thank, thanks so much. It, this was a, an extreme pleasure to go over uh, your roots in the game, your father, your son, uh, three generation of Montagues. Uh, congratulations on a wonderful career. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Giant Splash. Henry Shulman and I will continue providing podcasts throughout spring training and into this season. The Giant Splash is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. Support the Splash and all of the Chronicle's great journalism by signing up for a Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.